Good morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful for, for who you are, for your love, for Jesus, for, for your watch care over us. We ask that your spirit will join us today, enlighten our minds, help us to grow uh, more deeply into the principles of your kingdom, and enable us to shine forth the truth for this time. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Couple, Just a couple of announcements. I want to remind people that... Uh, Every week, my notes for class, uh, when the class recording is posted on our website, the PDF of my notes are available um, for people. So if you're looking for references or sources that I use, just download the PDF and, and they're all there for you. Also, because of censorship that we've experienced, our class has been censored uh, a couple of times now by YouTube. Uh, we are transitioning all of our video off YouTube to Odyssey. Uh, which is a different platform. And if you want to be sure you're able to access our videos, uh, go straight to our website, com, Bible study class, or any other video you want, whether it's one of our lectures or seminars, and just find it there. And when you, and you click the, 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 um, video link, it will take you to the Odyssey page to, to stream it. So just, uh, always remember to go to our website to access the sor- resources you need. We're doing lesson five. Uh, in the uh, quarterly present truth in Deuteronomy, and it's titled "The Stranger in Your Gates." And the and the memory verses from Deuteronomy ten nineteen, which reads, "Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt." And the lesson focuses our attention on loving others. And in the second paragraph, the lesson quotes Jesus out of Mark twelve thirty one, where Jesus says, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." Love your neighbor as yourself. You ever struggled with that? Love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. Well, is loving your neighbor the first and the greatest of all the commandments, or is it the second commandment? It's the second. Of course, the greatest is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why do we love God before we love our neighbor? We cut right to the chase. Yes. Yeah, they said because you can't love your neighbor unless you love God. That's right, because it is in loving trust relationship with God that we have selfishness purged from the heart. We are given wisdom to comprehend reality. We are empowered with strength, motivated with love, given new hearts and right spirits of mercy and compassion and patience and kindness. In other words, if we, as you say, don't love God, then we're not even equipped or incapable of loving others. So that, that's why it always starts with God first. So then what does it mean in love relation with God that we then take that next step when we love our neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself? First rule in caregiving? That's correct. First rule in caregiving is the health of the caregiver. If the caregiver doesn't actually take care of their own health, then they become disabled and nobody gets any care. So it's the first rule. And I I talk about this in my book, The Aging Brain, a whole chapter on those principles. And so, and this brings us back to that duty to God first. When we have a duty to God first, our duty is to maintain the health of the spirit temple, our wellness and the highest state of usefulness so that we're capable of carrying out service in God's cause to and for others. But if we compromise our health, then we are being ministered to by others because we're disabled. 
So each person must establish the routines necessary to maintain their own health and wellness. Regular sleep hours, healthy diet, physical exercise, not placing too much demands on their physical body, like lifting somebody that's well beyond their physical body's capacity to lift and thus injuring themselves. Um, Time away from work, time to rest the mind in, in relationship with God, quiet time for rejuvenation. So when one is in the role of caregiving... They have to first establish the minimum elements necessary to maintain one's own health. And if you find that the requirements of the person you're caring for require you to go beyond those minimums, that's an indicator you need outside help. It's no longer within the the domain of what you can reasonably do if that's an ongoing process, not just a situational thing like six weeks, broken leg, and then it's going to be over as they get their function back. Jesus, if you look at him as our model, consistently took time away from the needy masses. He he left them to rest, to sleep, to have time with his friends, to have time with his father for his own physiological needs as a human being because he had to achieve and live as a human being. Any disagreements with me on this principle? Anybody says, yeah, but. Anybody, any, any clarifying questions? Okay. So if Satan cannot get a righteous person to choose to do evil, what might Satan tempt a righteous person to do that would effectively neutralize the righteous person's influence in their community? Say it. Too Too much, yes. Get them to take on too many good tasks, too many good responsibilities, too many righteous duties and roles beyond their human capacities to fulfill them all so they overextend and burn out. It's a classic strategy. If you can't get them to actually reject righteousness and choose evil, then burn them out with righteous duties. So does this principle, maintaining one's health, the health of the person, not for selfishness sake, but for the sake of being a benefit to others, require that we have to sometimes say no is that a requirement as for finite beings? Would it require we set boundaries? Would it require we limit how much time, energy, and resources we spend on worthy projects? Does this principle apply only to individuals? Or does it apply to local churches as well? Or I hadn't got there. Jumping ahead. Does your local church have unlimited membership with unlimited human energy and unlimited finances? Or does the local church have to decide on what projects to invest? Will the local church at times have to say no to very worthy projects and needs in the community and the world around them because to invest in them would bankrupt the church? Does saying no to a worthy project mean the church and its members don't care about those people or those projects? Or does it simply mean that they have to decide what what those boundary lines are to sustain the vitality of the organization to minister to more people over time? So again, a strategy the devil might use would be to get overinvestment now to bankrupt that brings closure. Does this principle apply only to individuals and churches, or does it apply to other organizations, such as nations? Do nations have a responsibility to set boundaries, say, at their border, 
to limit the number of people entering the nation, not for the purpose of selfishness, but for the purpose of maintaining national integrity, health, financial sovereignty, to be a blessing to as many people as possible. Do churches have the responsibility not only to set boundaries on expenditures, but also does her church have responsibility to set a boundary on who they allow in as a voting member? Should a church allow members in who have voting and can change the direction of the church who haven't accepted Jesus? People who believe in Eastern philosophies and they want to change the very landscape of the, of the message of the church. Does the church have responsibility to say, we love you, but no, you can't become a member if that's the mindset you hold and you don't accept Christ? Is it unloving for a church to set such boundaries? Or is it an act of love? What about a nation? Should a nation allow immigrants in who don't share the values of religious liberty, civil liberty, people who, people who want to come in who change the, the nation towards a more of a communistic view of the state will control the press, the state will control your education of your children, the state will control your health care and your liberty to travel and your association with the families and your religious practices. Uh, if we had people immigrating here that, that valued the state being in charge, is it, is it, uh, an act of love for the for the people of that of that nation state to say no you aren't becoming a member of the society as long as you hold that mindset or is it an act of selfishness if you want to ruin a church ruin it might you trick them into overextending and bankrupting themselves on good projects or perhaps allowing unconverted members in who will fundamentally change the very principles and, and, and uh, beliefs of that organization. What about a nation? Could a nation be ruined by unregulated immigration? But aren't we to care for the stranger? To set boundaries, does that mean we don't love? Or is it an act of love to set boundaries? What does it say about people who advocate for actions of boundaryless systems as an expression of love. If we love, we let everybody do whatever. We never set boundaries. That's what love does. So could you be loving the strangers by setting limits on the amount of resources you expend in order to maintain a steady flow of support to help more people over time? Or could you love the stranger by allowing a steady uh, but limited number of people to enter into the organization so the organization is not overwhelmed and it's able to sustain its solvency over time so more people can be helped over time? Understand, Satan is at work in this world. And he is at work through a false perversion of what love is. A false sense of empathy and concern. That violate the very principles of God's kingdom and how reality works. He incites fear. He incites conflict. Satan is behind increasing poverty. What do you think in this nation over the last nine months... Increasing or decreasing poverty in this nation? Increasing. 
increasing poverty. Why? Because we have people advancing policies they claim are based on love for others and empathy and wanting to help, but their policies actually cause more people to end up in poverty so they injure and harm. This is what happens when you actually violate God's design laws of reality in the practices even from an empathic and caring and good heart. We'll come to this some more in real human life relationships, but the principles apply no matter where we, uh, where we apply them. Sunday's lesson. It asks us to read Deuteronomy 10, 1 through 15. We're not going to read all those verses, um, but the, uh, the, the section here in Deuteronomy 10 is about God instructing Moses to carve out another set of stone tablets, and God would write the Ten Commandments a second time on a second set of Ten Commandments, and they were to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what the, uh, the text is. So the question is, why was there a second set of the Ten? What happened to the first set? <laughs> Moses tripped coming down the mountain and they slipped out of his hand? <laughs> okay, Moses broke them on purpose because they were worshiping God. Okay, and that's why Moses did it, because they were rebelling already against God. So God had a second set. And where, after the second set was written by God, where were they instructed? Where was Moses instructed to put them? In the Ark of the Covenant. There's a lesson here in this, folks. It's a very important lesson. The Ark uh, ark in the Most Holy Place represents the universe reconciled at one with God again. The whole Old Testament theater is sinners way out here alienated from God being brought back into at one minute with God. It's a progression of movement toward God until we're back in his presence at one. And in the Most Holy Place, the Ark of the Covenant represents symbolically the universe reconciled to God. You have the angels on the lid representing the unfallen angelic host. You have the Shekinah of the Father, which represents God the Father, the Godhead. You have the lid made out of solid gold, which is the hysterion in Greek that Paul refers to. This is Christ. Christ is the lid. So the, the, the Shekinah touches the lid, which is God the Father. The angels are touching the lid. And remember it says in, in Scripture, all things are reconciled to Christ at the cross. He is the connecting link that brings us all back into unity. And under the lid is a box. And that box is made out of a porous wood covered completely in gold. That box represents sinners who have been restored to righteousness. The porous wood represents our corrupt, porous characters, but they have been cleansed and filled in. All the porous areas are filled in with gold. That's the righteousness of Christ. We have a new heart and right spirit. The character of Christ reproduced within us. And in the box, there were three elements put in the box. And they were put in in a certain order. And the first element to go in was the manna, which is symbolic of Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread that's come down. He is the word made flesh. And so the manna represents the living word of God, the living and written word, the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life that we ingest. As we take the truth in, it dispels the lies and wins us back to trust. And after we've taken in the truth and been one to trust, we open the heart. And the next element went in, which was the law. Okay, So once we're one to trust, I will write my law in your heart and minds. That's the new covenant. The living law of God is restored within. Selfishness is kicked out. Fear is kicked out. We live in love for God and others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. That's the law that is written in after we've come back to truth and been one to trust. And then the third thing that went in the ark, Aaron's rod that budded. It was a dead stick, but it came to life and gave 
fruit, but bore fruit. So our lives, which are dead in trespass and sin, when we've taken the word, which wins us to trust, and we've opened the heart and had the living law of God restored in, we who were dead in trespass and sin come to life and bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. It's a very powerful object lesson, and this is what it's being taught here, the universe being reconciled. Now, why is this important? There were two sets of Ten Commandments given, one that was broken, literally broken into pieces, and one that was unbroken. Which one went in the ark? The unbroken set. Understand the huge, huge object lesson that is being taught here. It's another biblical evidence that exposes the lie of penal legal theology. Under penal legal theology, it is declared, because it's actually not reality, they make declarations, they claim it's this way. It's declared that the law was broken and that the broken law requires penalty be paid. Of course, the law was broken, but the declaration is the law requires a penalty be paid. And the atonement is having the blood sprinkled above the broken law to pay the legal penalty of a death penalty that of a sinless life who didn't deserve it, who could be uh, paid in our place. Okay? If God wanted the lesson that the blood sprinkled over the law was to pay the, for the broken law, he would have had the broken law put in the ark. He had two sets. He had a broken set and he had an unbroken set. If the lesson was to be the blood payment placed for the broken law, there'd be a broken law in the ark. No, it was never that because it's never penal legal. It is design law. We, in Adam, deviated from God's principles upon which life is based. We're out of harmony. And in order to have life, the law has to be restored in us. We have to be put in harmony. So instead of the unbroken law going in, which keeps us terminal, dead in trespass and sin, the living law, so the broken law going in, the unbroken law goes in. And that's what he writes in our heart, the unbroken law. And that's what the object lesson is. The unbroken law goes in. So there's never anything payment legal-wise going on. The lesson asks us to read Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 16, which says the following. The Lord your God belong, to the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord ha- set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. So what do we understand about the heavens and the earth belonging to God and everything in them? He created them all. He did create them all. So that he, 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 so they belong to him because he's powerful? Because he designed the laws they operate on. Okay, I like where, the, like where you're going. So he did create them. No, there's not a dispute of that question. What happens to anything in God's creation that if it were to be completely severed from God and connection to God, what would happen to that? It dies. Everything belongs to God because he is the originator of everything, not just in creation, not just because he has power, but because he also, all living, all the entire universe is sustained by the constant disbursement of his life-giving energies that maintain its health and wellness or its operations and function if it's inanimate material like a, 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 a comet circling in the uh, universe somewhere. So what happens, though, if aspects of God's creation are not completely cut off from him, 
They still have connections, so they're still living, but they're no longer operating in perfect harmony with his original designs for life. What happens then? They groan under the weight of sin. All nature groans under the weight of sin. They suffer. They have defects. They're compromised in health and wellness and function. And if they aren't restored back, they will still eventually die because the the deviations from the design eventually destroy life. So all things are God's for what purpose? All things are God's for what purpose? So that God can be built up by them? Satan Satan alleged that, yes. Does God get taxes from his creatures to fund an infrastructure project in heaven? (laughs) Does God require praise to make God feel good? Does God uh, create, did God create angels to get good housekeeping services? What is the purpose of all creation? To be recipients of God's love. That's the purpose. To be recipients of God's love. God's grace, God's energy flowing out from him that give life and health and happiness and vitality uh, and ever-expanding growth in all things godly. God experiences joy from the health, wellness, development, joy of his children, just as parents experience joy in pouring into their children and seeing them grow and seeing them celebrate and seeing new skills and seeing new insights and seeing new epiphanies. And we see this in our children. It brings us joy. So maybe relationship is an additional thing, not just to be recipients, but to be in a reciprocal relationship with God. Sure. Yeah. The expression of love. Yes. So the, so the purpose of creation is to receive God's love and to grow in God's love, which is relational. So what is the most important thing to know about all things belonging to God? It's his character of love, his design law of love, how things are built to operate upon the principles of love. That's the most important thing to know. What's the lesson about circumcision? The object lesson about circumcision the Abrahamic covenant, and then the application to the circumcision of the heart. Has it ever seemed strange and weird to you? I see some heads nodding, very strange, very weird. Okay, the physical circumcision of the body, of the bodily organ, is the circumcision of that part of the body that was designed by God to be an expression of intimate love and life-giving love when the two shall become one at one minute. Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one. One flesh. Circumcision physically cuts away a, a physical barrier to the intimacy and union. It's a, sim, a symbol to the metaphor of our hearts. Jesus prayed that we would be one with God and each other as he is one with the Father. This is atonement or atonement. It requires we cut out of our hearts or cut our hearts free from every attachment or thing of this world that interferes with that ultimate intimacy with God. Fear and selfishness must be cut out of the heart. 
Can it be compared at all with God asking people to remove their shoes when they come into his presence? A barrier between holy ground and them? That would be another uh, uh, object lesson. We must have the worldly values, the things we cling to that comfort ourselves, cut away if that is an interference to our uh, our relationship with God. As long as we feel safe and secure because of our wealth or position or ability or education or guns or church membership or rituals or Sabbath keeping or uh, comfort ourselves with entertainment or drugs or alcohol or food or anything else instead of God, we will not be in complete union with God. So God allows, understand what's happening in the world right now. God allows events to unfold to challenge our comfort, our heart's security, so that we will cut away everything that we find safety in before him. Physical circumcision is painful. So too is cutting away the ties from our hearts that we have historically used to make ourselves feel safe. The older a person is when they're physically circumcised, the more painful. Likewise, the older a person is with deeper attachments to the thing of the world, things of the world, the more painful to cut away those attachments. And sometimes, like the rich young ruler, People walk away sad rather than cutting the ties to this world. Also, you cannot tell walking on the street who's been circumcised and who has, been not, who has not been circumcised. It requires intimacy with a person to know that. You might be their doctor, but there's a certain intimacy in disrobing to know that. Likewise, you can't tell on the street whose hearts have been circumcised. You have to get to know people. You have to have, see them in opportunities where they have really disclosed themselves to see whether they love God and others more than self. So circumcision is a powerful and poignant metaphor of cutting away of the fear and selfishness, the ver- various worldly attachments that we use to make ourselves feel safe. What about the, the metaphor of stiff-necked? Well, the lesson rightly suggests it means stubborn, but I think it means more than stubborn. People with a stiff neck, when their neck is stiff, what they, what can, what they, what can they not do? They miss their vision. They can't turn their heads left and right. Imagine driving your car with a stiff neck. You can't turn to take in a broad range of perspectives. People with a stiff neck are less open to have their ideas challenged, to assimilate new data. They become resistant and stuck in a single focus and are often not open to truth. And unsafe. And they're unsafe. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Monday's lesson asks us to read Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19, which reads, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourself are aliens in Egypt. When the Bible uses language like the God, that God is the God of gods, does that mean there are actually other gods? No, he's talking about our perspective. No, there are no other real gods, right? 
but there are many false gods. And so Moses is communicating, as you say, to the people and, and through their history. And remember, Abram and uh, Jacob had their household gods until Jacob buried them. And then uh, coming out of Egypt, all the ten plagues were, were to attack the various gods of Egypt. They were polytheistic pagans. So God is letting them know that you may think there are many gods, but no, there's, there's not. There's just, just me. I'm the great God, uh, the only God. But it says the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. What does that mean? He accepts no bribes. What, what is a bribe? He says an appeasement. Yeah, payment for a certain behavior. Uh, the dictionary says anything, anything given or serving to persuade or induce. Anything given to persuade or induce, typically to do something you wouldn't do freely is the idea here. You're being bribed to do it. You wouldn't do it of your own free will. That's the idea. So the Bible says that God accepts no bribes. Do you believe this is true? God accepts no bribes. Yes or no? I certainly do. But do you realize that almost all of Christianity does not believe this? Do you realize that many in our own church do not believe this? They believe God does accept bribes. Most of Christianity teaches just the opposite. They teach that Jesus died to pay a blood payment to God so that God will be persuaded, propitiated, assuaged, appeased, influenced to have his wrath turned away so that he will declare us righteous even though we're not. Jim, we have a very deeply seated merit system in our society. And people, I think, feel that uh, they rightly choose to build merit with God. Well, this idea, and, and so there's, there's two ways to build merit. The, the historic works way is, well, we'll get all of our little gold stars for our memory verses, or we'll do the sacraments of the church, or, or we'll do uh, this sacrifice, or we'll go on a long pilgrimage, or we'll do some work in ourselves, and, and it'll, it'll show God our sincerity, and, and he will give us credit for that hard work. That's... Uh, Romanism, uh, traditional paganism. We do some work to influence the God. And uh, much of Protestant Christianity uh, uh, rejects that, of course, out of hand. But then they substitute another form of bribery, where our works are nothing but filthy rag. There's nothing we can do to influence God. So God sent his son down here uh, to die in our place, and his son now goes to the Father and offers his father the, his own sinless blood as a payment to the Father to influence, assuage, propitiate, or otherwise pay off and bribe the Father. So traditional penal views um, theology um, teaches bribery. It's just that God provides the payment for himself through his son. It is a lie. In this text is another place that the Bible is true to itself. God accepts no bribes. The, the sacrifice of Christ was not sent to influence God. It was because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we would not perish and we would be reconciled back to him. It was not for influencing of God. Fixing God, cleansing God, adjusting God, changing God, it was for influencing, adjusting, fixing, and changing human beings back into righteousness. So it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that, here's the reason, we might become the righteousness of God. We can be restored to actual righteousness. Yes? Yeah, this is exciting news. 
you know, it, all their Christians should be so jazzed about it because a lot of their kids and grandkids and families and siblings have not embraced They've walked away from Christianity or never embraced it. And for us to be able to empower them and say, hey, there's no bad news about God. You know, just don't believe the lies about Satan. So this, this should be a very unifying thing. And they may have a little pride they have to swallow or spit out. You know, I don't know why we swallow pride. It seems unhealthy. You can tend to absorb the things you swallow. But you know, this is exciting news that we can tell our, our Christians and those non-Christians, say, hey, we got good news. These guys mean well, but they... They got the story backwards right now, so be patient with them. So, so you're right. So let's clarify the reason this is not good news for a lot of people is because the root, what's the root that we always come back to in this class? What law lens do you look through? Trying to share this good news with people who still assume that God's law works like human law, then if you assume that to be true, God's law is just a system of rules, then justice requires rule giver to punish. And somebody had to be punished. So their whole system of understanding the purpose of Christ's coming is, is wrong as long as they hold to the wrong law construct. And so we have to bring them back to see God as creator. His laws are the laws upon which life are built. Sin deviates from those laws which cause ruin and death, and God is working through Christ to restore us back in harmony, put his law in our hearts and minds. So you have to address that law question, and then it becomes really great news. The last paragraph in talking about how we are to love others states, in other words, the Lord is telling the people, okay, you are chosen, you are special, and I love you, but I love others too, including the needy and the helpless among you, and just as I love them, you must love them as well, This is one of your covenant obligations, and an important one, too. What does this make you think? Do you go, well, I feel a greater sense of liberty and freedom now, or do you feel burdened? You're obligated. You have an obligation. It's your duty. Can you love people through obligation? No. No command. Can you get love through legislation or taxation? Or force. What would you do? Would any of you want a spouse who approached the relationship through a checklist of duties and obligations they carried out because they have a rule to do so? It's required of the position. So they meet you at the door and smile when you come home. They give you an obligatory hug and kiss. And then they look down at their list and go, oh, yes. Okay, hold on. Wait. Third item, I love you. And then they look, was that sufficient? Or do you need me to say that two more times or three? I'll say it as many as is necessary. How many would you like to hear it? Would you like a relationship like that? They're meeting all their obligations. Would that be love? No. But it does describe a lot of relationships. How many approach a relationship with God this way? So I received this email this week. I'll share it with you. Thank you all for everything you do. Don't let the discouraging emails derail you. There are more of us that your ministry has blessed than there are of them. You helped my wife and I to find our way out of a stale and repetitive 17-year-old SDA experience with Revelation seminar after seminar and knowing all kinds of facts about God and memorizing scriptures, but raining fire and brimstone on anyone I disagree with on Facebook. 
your application of God's design laws into our everyday lives is life-altering as it teaches us how to live out Jesus' character in real life through his indwelling spirit. And for the first time in a long time, we started to see progress in the way we treated others and even each other. When other SDA preachers always talked about denying self, they make it sound so dreary and self-punishing, almost making it sound like God wants us to walk around like monks, miserable and depriving ourselves of any pleasure. This, of course, is not true and is incomplete. When understood through design law, denying self more accurately means if you love others more than self and you are looking out for their best interests over yours, you are in fact still denying yourself, but now the heart motive is altruistic, agape love, like Jesus loves us, and then we find joy and happiness in the whole experience, not just doing the self-denying thing out of compliance. I would have never understood that without your message. Thank you so very much, guys, for what you do. Your message has made a huge impact in my life, in my relationship with my Lord, whom I love now more than ever, by seeing just how much more amazing his character is, especially in the way he has dealt with humanity through his design laws. May God continue to bless you all. Have you had a similar experience? Is there a difference between loving others out of compliance and loving others because your heart has been changed to love others? This is why in the New Covenant, the law is written on the heart and mind. It is a living law of love restored into the heart and mind that becomes the wellspring of action. It isn't primarily about the external behavior, but the motives that drive the behavior. And even when we are restored to love, does God call each one of us to love others in the same way with the same activity? No, we all are to be of service to the community around us, but we are all been gifted with different gifts, abilities, talents, and we will necessarily uh, express that love with different actions that are complementary for a larger whole. Tuesday's lesson, a lesson again focuses our attention on helping the stranger. What does, but what does that look like? Can the desire to help others be used by Satan to hurt others. Absolutely. When the desire to help others is carried out by people who don't understand reality, who don't understand God's design laws, who don't understand the circumstances or situation, who are carrying out their ministry to keep a rule, fulfill an obligation, obey a commandment, make themselves feel good, make themselves look good, get credit. All these things can cause harm. If we really want to help others in a godly way, we must understand how reality works. We must understand God's design law. The actual need of the person from an eternal point of view, not merely a temporal point of view. And then with that perspective and desire for their welfare in heart, sometimes the best help that can be given a person is to let them suffer. Amen. Did you hear what I just said? Am I being harsh? Am I making it up? Is this just a psychiatrist who's gone off the reservation? 
Well, I'll read to you out of 2 Thessalonians 3.10. This is Paul. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Paul was clearly a cruel, unloving, unchristlike, non-compassionate, uncaring, lack of empathizing human being. No, he wasn't. Paul understood reality. He understood how love functions. Paul was fulfilling in this directive the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. How? How is allowing a person who won't work to go hungry loving them? I love how it's phrased there. If the man will not work, he has a choice on whether or not to work. Say if a man cannot work. Which is more in harmony with God's design? God's law of love. What Paul wrote, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Or the basic universal income proposed by some politicians today. Which is more loving? I just thought of the story of the prodigal son. It wasn't until he was starving and nobody would feed him that he went back home to be restored to his family. Excellent. Good point. Yes, there's no question. Yes. Hunger is a pretty good motivator. (laughs) Hunger is a good motivator. So, which is more loving? Paul's counsel or basic universal income being proposed by some today? Understand, I didn't make that up. It's actively being, it's being moved forward in certain municipalities today. We're not, and remember, basic universal income is not disability income for those who say it's not retirement income. It's not poverty subsistence. In the Bible, uh, there's a hand somewhere. Yeah. The word helpful or help is an interesting one. Whose definition of God's or my own? And does mine ever line up with his? And do we want to call helpful loving? So that's exactly right. You can't help somebody. That's what I said earlier. You cannot help somebody if you don't understand design law. This is the point, how Satan constantly deceives people in the world today under and we'll, we'll, we'll give them good motive. We won't even look at, at, at the evil motive who the purpose purposely is deceived. We'll give them good motive, empathy. They want to help. But if they don't understand design law, then their actions to help will harm because they will violate the principles upon which life and health are actually based. And this is what happens with universal, basic universal income. It actually destroys character. Just think about this, parents in the room. Would you take your teenage children and provide them with perpetual universal income with no requirements that they do anything to develop themselves as human beings? Just a blank check that they can have every month and live their life any old way they want with no accountability. Would you do that? What would happen if you did? Now, there are some individuals that are just so self Self-directive, there are some individuals that would still achieve, but what would happen if you did that to 100 children? Would the vast majority still develop themselves? Yes. Taylor, in life I've learned that the more you do for others, the less they do for themselves. So the prodigal son story was mentioned. He had his inheritance, and he went out into wild living, and he ended up 
homeless, living with the pigs. Why didn't the father put him on basic universal income? He had the means to do it. He could have provided that for him. Why didn't he? Because clearly the father didn't love him. But if he actually loved, he would have done that for him, right? No. no. Would the boy have ever repented and taken responsibility, developed his character, and come home if he would have done that? No. Understand this thing called basic universal is purposely designed to destroy character. Personal development and achievement. God gave Adam and Eve work in Eden in a sinless world. It was for their good that they worked in a sinless world. And then after the, the, the flood, he made it more, well, after, after the fall, he made it more difficult to, 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 to work. They had to, to feed themselves, they had to work. But after the flood, he made it more difficult. Because the work, you know, what's the old saying? Idle hands are? The devil's workshop. That's right. The work helps us learn self-discipline, which helps us learn to resist the temptations of the carnal nature. And so those who are able-bodied or capable of work, they need to work. It's good for their character, for their development. But isn't that the way we raise an entire generation? You, uh, you just get passed along in school whether you actually accomplish or not. Oh, there's no boundaries. So we've raised a whole generation like that. Yes, this is based on a philosophy of the world. It is a godless philosophy. It's a worldly philosophy. And it's a destructive philosophy based on, this is Satan, what I've got in notes, Satan manipulates people through empathy and compassion to take actions that approximate or mimic love but are actually violations of God's design law and infantilize, damage, hurt, and destroy people. You will find this if you have discerning mind and you can understand design law. You can look into society and you will see certain policies are more consistently through certain political persuasions that are designed to make people dependent upon the state rather than help them develop individual autonomy and capacities for self-governing. The last fruit of the Spirit is the fruit, is the fruit where you gain self-mastery or self-control. You don't get self-mastery and self-control without exercising uh, authority over oneself through various problem-solving um, opportunities that life brings to us. And so certain philosophies that are caretaker philosophies, you might call this paternalism. Paternalism is the idea that the parents know better. So the, the elites... The, 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 the elites in our society, they're wiser, smarter, they know better. The, the, the vast majority of the masses, they are, they are deplorables or, or some uh, less capable of making decisions. Making, they need to be cared for. They need to be governed. They need to be controlled. We need to set structure about them because they're like children. They can't, they can't really uh, make good decisions. That's paternalism. So the, and so those people with that philosophy want a caretaker government where the government will provide for you food and a house and a car and a job and health care and decide what career you should or most. They'll give you a test in third grade and decide that you're more suited to be this type of worker than that type of worker and the state will need you to work there and not over here. And so it's all for the good of the state and we really care about you and it's for your good you do this too, of course. And so the, the, this is paternalism. Germany. Germany does that now. Versus autonomy, which is a different philosophy. And the philosophy of autonomy is the idea that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind, 
Each one of us has been given our own God-given individuality, identity, capacity to think and to reason, and we are to develop those based on the dictates of our own conscience and the exercise of our own uh, authority within oneself. So Satan tricks people through over-empathy into creating policies that are designed uh, in the empathic person's mind to help others, but they actually end up harming and injuring. If your grandmother is weak and she struggles to walk, uh, but she's still able to walk, is it an act of love to give her a motorized wheelchair for her house so she doesn't have to walk around her house anymore? No. Or it's an act of cruelty to do that because it will only cause atrophy and accelerate the weakness and accelerate the disability. And this is, this is false empathy, false love. I'm going to help her because she has a hard time walking. Well, she's got arthritis and it hurts to walk, so we will help reduce her pain by giving her a motorized wheelchair. No, you will accelerate the decline. You have a child who stumbles and falls when they're learning to walk, and they, and they scrape their chin, and they cry. And you see that, of course, you clean the wound, and you comfort the child, but you say, oh, but I love you too much to ever see you get hurt again. It just breaks my heart, and I don't ever want to see you in pain, so I'll carry you for the rest of your life. I won't set you down, because if I set you down, you'll stumble and fall and get hurt, and I want to protect you. I want you to be safe. Understand the safetyism in our society today is perverse. It obstructs development. It infantilizes people. I read a term uh, a few years ago describing this excess empathy, and it was called empathobesity. There's some rehab hospitals, physical rehab <laughs> hospitals, where, uh, um, say, a young person drive, uh, goes into a pool and breaks their neck, now they're paralyzed, and they won't even let the parents be there for the, ne- for the first several weeks anyway, because the parent would object to what it takes to teach them to become independent and not be totally reliant on, on people. Yeah. The parent doesn't want to see what, what they have to go through. And that's what happens in many of the school systems today. That it, 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 it doesn't happen on sports teams, by the way. Sports teams, if you don't, do the, if you don't lift the weights, if, you don't, if your muscles don't burn, if you don't run, the, the, you don't get stronger, you, you're not going to make the cut. And you're not gonna, but in academic settings, oh, it's not fair that we should require them to study and work hard and, and uh, we should still pass them along because it could hurt their feelings if they don't get passed along and so forth. And so there's no requirement for actual development of the mind. And this is very, as you were saying, very destructive. It's a certain empathic perversion because we're trying to protect someone's feelings rather than actually love them. And if you love somebody well, you will necessarily interact with them in ways that sometimes their feelings are going to get hurt. Not because you've done any injury to them, but because the path of wellness goes through a valley of discomfort. All right, Wednesday's lesson, the first paragraph says, as believers, we have been called to reflect the character of God. I bet most people when you hear that go, amen, amen. I'm going to challenge it, though. No question we are to have Christ formed within us. There's no question about that, as Paul says in Galatians, that uh, he labors to have Christ formed within us, for, within, his, within the people he labors for. There's no question about that. But having Christ formed within you, is that the same thing as reflecting the character of Christ? Hmm. Well, what do you think about this quote? It's out of a book called Education, page 17. Every human being created uh, in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the creator, a power akin to the creator's? individuality, power to think and to do. 
The men in whom this power is developed are to be men who bear responsibility, who are leaders in enterprise, and who influence character. It is the work of true education to develop this power. What power? To think and to act. To train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Only other men's thoughts? Or not mere reflectors of God's thoughts? What do you think? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That, that God gives you the ability to get stronger and stronger with a relationship and, with, and to the point where you don't have to be controlled by a parental authority. Now you are uh, fully embracing the principles of God and you are self-controlled. So is there a difference between a bicycle reflector and a headlamp? <laughs> yes. Yes. Is there an object lesson in that? We are not to be reflectors of other men's thoughts. What about reflectors of God's thought? Did Jesus say, I, I have called you to be reflectors in the world? No. What do you call us to be? Lights. Let your l- reflection so shine that others will see me in you. Is that what he said? Let your reflection, let my reflection so shine in you that people will see me when they look at you. Is that what he told them? What do you say? Let your Light. Light show shine. Interesting. He's building free agency. Oh, he's building free agency. This is a big, powerful thing. I'm telling you, this imperial law lie and this auto, this, this authoritarian construct is pagan. And you find paganism in the godless view, which I was talking about a moment ago, in certain philosophies that are designed to help, but you also find paganism in the Roman view. An authoritarian view where we are to do what the master says without asking questions. That's not what God calls us. There's a few people in the Old Testament who are called friends of God. We're doing Deuteronomy, written by one of the people called God's friends. Moses, another one, was Abraham. Now, interestingly, both of these individuals had opportunity where God came directly to them and communicated to God what God was intending to do. I'm going to go destroy Sodom. I'm going to wipe these people out, Moses, and start over with you. And in both cases, the two friends of God said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, No, they questioned him. They challenged him. They spoke back to him. Far be it from you, oh God. Shouldn't the Lord of all the earth do what's right? Shouldn't you do the right thing? I think you're doing the wrong thing, Lord. Where's my lightning bolt staff around here? Got a lightning bolt for you. No. They didn't merely reflect back what they were told. They took the principles of God, understanding his nature, understanding the methods of love, understanding his character, having love for his reputation, and they processed it through their individuality. They let their light shine even in their relationship with God and and said, no, I I care about what people will think about you. I don't want to see you hurt your reputation like this. I'm going to suggest to you God wants more from us than simply to be puppets that reflect what he says. He wants us to live as sentient, independent beings restored to self-control, living out his living law in harmony because we agree 
We've been fully persuaded in our own mind. We cherish and value it, not through our own strength and power, but through our willful intentions to align ourselves with his power. Yes. I'm in Hebrew, is it what you just said reminds me? Paul tells us that we need to be partakers of the divine nature, not reflectors of the divine nature. Oh, I like that, yep. So in the second paragraph in Wednesday's lesson, it's all but proverbial how the weak, the poor, the outcast don't get the same kind of justice in most human courts as do those with money, power, and connections. Does anybody expect human justice, excuse me, does anybody expect godly justice through human systems? No. Well, you say no, but the answer is yes. That's why we constantly see people trying to change the systems to get justice. What do you think the whole social justice movement is about? It is about to get justice on earth through changing the governmental systems, the laws to, to change this or that legislation, get this governor in, to get these new justice appointed. We want justice. Uh, they don't understand basic reality. You can never get justice. You can never get godly justice through human governments because they all operate on Satan's principles. All the kingdoms of the world are Satan's, all of them. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Any pursuit of justice through the human systems, the more deeply into investment you get into that, the more deeply you're aligning yourself with the powers that will persecute the people of God. I'm going to say that again. The more deeply you invest yourself into pursuing justice through the human governments of the world, the more deeply you align your heart affections. Your heart is not being circumcised from the, from the systems where you're not coming out of Babylon. You're investing your heart into Babylon, trying to reform the systems of Satan to make the systems of Satan godly, and you're only corrupting yourself. You cannot get it. Does that mean that we become anarchy? We just throw our hands up. We, we have no concern for human government. No, you have to understand what you're dealing with. You will never get godly justice. The best that human governments can do are restrain the powers that will exploit the people. That's the best they can do, and they're only limited in that. Human governments can pass laws structured and intended to be unbiased and to improve the lives of their citizens. They can do that. Does that mean if they pass such laws that are unbiased, and intended to improve the lives of the citizens, that then in those places where those types of laws are passed, you will have consistent godly justice. No. no. Why? Because there's always loopholes, and there's always lawyers, and there's always selfish people that will exploit and manipulate even around those unbiased and, and best laws that humans can practice. And in additionally, I'm going to say something. This is, I, I think, profound for you to recognize. Even if you have good laws passed that are unbiased and, and uh, well-intended, you cannot have any even approximation of justice if the government officials don't have Jesus in their heart. If you have godless officials running your nation, it doesn't matter what the laws are. They will be ignored. Have we seen laws ignored? Oh, I don't know. Are there laws that, uh, that pertain to our own southern border that are completely unenforced and, uh, and ignored? And I could go on all day. When you have, when, and so understand this. The laws themselves 
in order for there to be actual, an approximation of godly justice, require godly people to administer the government administratively, judicially, legislatively. You have to have godly people. If you don't have godly people, they will pervert and, co- and, and manipulate the system for their own ends. So what if we vote those people into office? We constantly vote those ungodly people into office. Even godly, I mean, what we consider godly people, let's get them in so they can make the good rules. If you actually get godly people into office, they will. They will do better, and they will be less abusive and less manipulative and less exploitative. There will be people of integrity and honesty. But the system still will not be consistently reliable because, because any time you go to apply uh, any rule to any circumstance, somebody will be advantaged and somebody will be disadvantaged. It doesn't matter, even if it's best intended. Even if it's how you line up for potluck and you make a rule that will go by age. Well, the people who go first get to get all the, the uh, fruit salad and the people who go last, there's none left by the time they get. It's not fair. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? That was an arbitrary rule how you line up, right? And this is any time you make a rule, somebody gets advantaged, somebody gets disadvantaged, even with righteousness at stake. But when everybody loves everybody at potluck, which is always the case... You're happy for the people to go first to get that, and you're not put off or offended or uh, agitated at all. It's like, oh, that's okay. I didn't like that fruit salad anyway. (laughs) But the point, get your mind around this. We live in a world that is basically godless. And the officials we have in our country that run this country are basically godless. Don't expect human governments to do what's right. They won't. They'll make rules. They'll enforce them coercively. They will, they will violate liberties. The best we can do is hope to restrain those people who would act um, with, with authoritarianism. Yes, Wendell. If I consider myself godly and trying to follow and everything else, I'm still human and have imperfect perceptions and decisions and will come up with imperfect implementation of good rules. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So even the godly with good motives will still make human errors of fact, errors of, of information, uh, errors of judgment with, with good motives, and so people will still get hurt. Carrying out the action, even with good intention, uh, whether it's a physician in an emergency room giving a medication and uh, the medication was not uh, the one that was intended to be given because there is an error in... These, these happen, don't they? Medical innocent errors and people get hurt. So, again, you will never have godly justice. You can only have godly people seeking to help each other. When that happens, there's grace, there's understanding, there's forgiveness, there is a sense of unity. We share a common purpose. But when you actually have self at the center rather than God and the welfare of others at the center, then we have division, we have hostility, we want control, we want power, we want a force. And this is what we see happening in the world. So let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we we ask that you will pour your spirit out, enlighten our minds, help us have the discernment to be able to recognize the difference between your kingdom of love, your design laws about how life works, 
and the systems of this world and that we will not get caught up into the systems of this world because we understand what's happening now is exactly what you've told us is going to happen at the end of time. Uh, imperialistic powers rising in order to coerce consciences of people and force people and divide society. Lord, we want to love. We want to love you. We want to love our neighbors, ourselves. Empower us with the, with the desires and motives of love that are not natural to our fallen heart. We can only love as you give us and pour your love into our hearts. And we, we trust you, Lord. Take away the fear. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to be resistant to the constant bombardment of the fear messaging, knowing that your hand is over your people and you will deliver us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.